Okay, well, let's turn together to the book of Revelation, and we'll see just how apropos it is that we sing about the depth of the Father's love. And at the very end, we'll sing of our Redeemer, this whole service, and the message in particular is couched in uh, lifting up who he is and his love in worship so that we will experience it. Um, we come once again to Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus where there's a whole lot of truth, a truth that penetrates deep into the heart. And we need to remember in that context that it's all surrounded by the love of God. It's truth in love in his case. Um, Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus, and today we get to the heart of it, really to the heart and soul uh, of the Christian faith as we're going to be seeing over the next uh, two weeks. Uh, just as a reminder of where we've been, uh, ever since I've come, we've been focusing uh, on the Father and on the Son. As I mentioned before, the reason we're doing this is Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, just so you can see the forest for the trees over the last several months of sermons. He said there in John 17 that under it all, his goal with the disciples was to manifest the Father's name to them and his own. Their names are the revelation of their character and their nature, of their person and of their work, of their very thoughts uh, and words. Their names are really the treasuries of who they are. And that's what Christ wanted to leave deep within his men, the treasure of who they are. He had been with them for only three years and he was about to go and they were about to be divided and scattered through a very difficult transition, to put it mildly. And he knew that what they most needed under such circumstances was to be rooted and grounded in them and in the Father and the Son as their only sure foundation. And in the same way, my goal in the first, these first months has been to root and ground us in the Father and the Son as our only sure foundation as we transition, as we transition to a new chapter to get ready for the next pastor. Because under it all, to be ready, we need to be looking not to a man, but to the Father and the Son. Not to a pastor, but to a Savior. So we spent our first two weeks on the Son in Revelation 1. And after encountering uh, his incredible compassion at the end of that chapter where he had slayed John with his word, uh, he reached out and touched him in his incredible forgiving mercy. So we ended with Christ's compassion at the end of Revelation 1. And then we spent seven weeks on the Father, if you remember, in Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, and on his great compassion. And now we're returning to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ for more of the Son. We've been seeing in chapter 2 just how true it is that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And so for two weeks, uh, three weeks ago, uh, up until two weeks ago, we've been focusing on that because that's what the Scripture does here, like it or not. Uh, he, a sharp two-edged sword, as John said in chapter 1. He's been slicing pretty deeply if you remember, exposing things like uh, the falsehood of truth without love and how we all fall into that. Threatening some pretty severe discipline with this church at Ephesus. Two weeks ago, we saw the reality of his congregational discipline in our day. It wasn't just back then. And how when that happens, when there's institutional discipline, he's looking for uh, individual confession. He's looking for some confessing and not just a lot of finger pointing. But we're going to see today and next week that the whole point 
of this individual confession that we went through two weeks ago is to help us connect with his compassion as our treasure deep within, a treasure that can can sustain us through life's ups and downs and through any transition. He's just waiting to break in, and all he needs is our brokenness, our brokenness that opens us up to him. And for that to happen, there needs to be, I'm afraid, one final thrust of the sword today. A a deeper one. Down through our thoughts and intentions to our deepest motivations. You know, sometimes in marriage counseling, you'll hear the husband. I've heard this several times over the last 35 years. You'll hear the husband, the one who worked 18 hours a day and never went home, you know. You'll hear him say to his wife or to his children or to his ex-wife, something like this, but I did it all for you. And she'll say to him, or maybe they'll say to him, the kids, oh, no, you didn't. Not as much as you think you did anyway. You were climbing the ladder. That was a part of your motivation. Maybe the deepest part. But we, we wanted you. We needed you. Just as much as we needed your work. A lesser standard of living would have been better than what we got. And according to Scripture, some people are going to say much the same to Christ. But I did it all for you. And to some he'll say, oh, no, you didn't. You worked hard all right, but it re- wasn't really for me, at least not in your deepest motivations. And he'll have to say to some, I never knew you. But Lord, Lord, did we prophesied in your name and did all these things depart from me for I never knew you. And in every church there are some people like that. And this letter to the Ephesus, the Ephesians, is a warning to such people and to all of us lest we slip slide into anything result, remotely resembling that. He'll, he'll have to say what I really wanted was you. I wanted this relationship between the two of us and for everything to flow from that, from my love for you and from your love for me and your desire to please me above anyone else. But you had other agendas behind what you did, other idols that you were serving. It was in my name all right, but was it really for my sake? And so he begins in verse 2 by saying, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. We saw uh, several weeks ago that what that sounds like in the Greek is this. And let me just review a bit because it's important to tee up what we're doing today. What it sound, and I'm just exaggerating a bit, but to make the point, what it sounds like in the Greek, word for word, is this. I know those deeds of yours and the toil of yours. And don't tell me I know all about this endurance of yours. And you sure put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And by gum, you found them to be false. And this perseverance of yours, yes, you've endured for my name's sake anyway, but was it really for my sake? And you've not grown weary in this hard work of yours in my name, but it's not really for me. That is, it's you, 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 yours, yours, yours. But I don't really find myself in there anywhere. It's your religion, not mine. That's how far it can go. For I have this against you, verse 4, that under it all, as your deepest motivation, you have left your first love. You've forsaken your first love. That's the Greek word. They, they were at the end of this whole process and we're not anywhere near that, but it's always a danger. And we fall in and out of it. 
Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So how he begins is not as much a compliment as it seems in the light of the judgment that he had uh, against them. And he begins in this way in his letter to the first of the seven churches to warn all the churches of, of all time what they have to avoid like the plague what God's people fall again and again into like Israel did, and that is Phariseeism. Especially churches that hold high the word of God and who stand against the culture uh, like the church at Ephesus did, who know a whole lot of doctrine but only have a little devotion, who have well-developed heads but underdeveloped hearts. He's saying that here with Ephesus, essentially, it had gotten to the place where what was wrong with the church was so bad that it cancels out what's right with this church to the point that he had to threaten to remove their lampstand. That's how bad it can get, even with Bible-believing churches of the stature of Ephesus. Not that we're there. There's a whole lot of good going on here, and there has been, but this is a word to the wise. And just what is that? Well, we've seen that the Ephesian problem was labor without love and truth without love, which we saw happens to all of us. But it goes even deeper if we take the time to unpack Christ's simple but uh, profound words here. Ultimately, it goes to the heart of true Christianity. That's where he begins with his first letter. The heart of true Christianity, and that is to see our need for a Savior as that man up there is. He's just praying, Lord. If motives matter, I'm in trouble is to see our need for a Savior, not just before we believe, but after, our desperate need for Him to sanctify us down to our deepest motivations. We need the gospel all through life. Where we can't do it, but He can if we come to Him in brokenness and contrition. Because the heart of the problem is something that we cannot solve on our own. It's Roman numeral two in your notes. The heart of what he says to the church at Ephesus, uh, the heart of what I just read from in Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus is this. He measures our words, verse 2b, and our deeds, verse 2a and 3, by our motives, verse 4. He measures our words and our deeds by our motives and ultimately by our love, the love from which it's so easy to fall, just like with the Ephesian congregation. And that's a problem. That's a problem for which only he has the solution. It's a fundamental principle that you will find all through the Bible. What's he looking for? Well, it's not external. It's internal. It has to do with as much with motivations as actions. Not just with what we do, but with why we're doing it. Colossians 3.22, for instance, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service. I don't care about external service. As those who are merely pleased men, but internally with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And what's supposed to come from deep within the sincerity of our hearts? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. Galatians 1.10, for, for I am now seeking, the, for am I now seeking, Paul said, the approval of man or God? That is, what is my motive in what I'm doing? 
Am I now seeking the approval of man or God or am I, of God or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is serious. So who are you trying to please? Many more passages, we don't have time to get into it, but the fundamental principle that you'll find all through the Bible is this. What's inside is as important, if not far more important, than what's on the outside. And in particular, our motivations, our intentions are as important as our actions. And to forget this is to slip into Phariseeism. Let me say that again. The teaching here in Revelation 2, as we get to the heart of it, as Christ slices to the heart of it, is that our motivations, our intentions, are just as important as our actions. So much so that our words and our deeds will be judged by the motives that drove them. What Christ was doing here at the deepest level was judging the Ephesians by their motives. Just as he will when he returns. And in doing this, in his great compassion, he was readying them for his return. (laughs) Just as he does with all his people all the time. And through what he said to them, he's readying us too so he won't have to say to anyone in this room, depart from me for I never knew you. You did it in my name, but none of it was for my sake because you never knew me. It's all through Scripture that this is what he's after to the point that this is what he'll look for when he comes again. Like, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, when Christ returns, what's he going to do? He will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus, Romans 2.16. Under it all, that's what he's most interested in because why you do what you do is the true you. Which is why God examines the motives of, his, of our hearts. First Thess 2.24. It's why he's so interested in this. Why the, uh, it's why the Lord searches all hearts, First Chronicles 28.9, to understand every intent of the thoughts. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, Proverbs 16, 2. But the Lord weighs the motives. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, which is exactly what he was doing with the Ephesians. He was trying to get their attention just as he's trying to get ours, to get them down, to own up to their motivations. Uh, and, as, and as he does, we need to say like David did, a man after God's own heart, he, or deep within, and we need to say it too, search me, O God, go to it, Lord, and I'm gonna help you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way deep within me that I don't even know about. And on that basis, from the inside out, lead me in the everlasting way of your, doing your words and your words and your will. David was saying, do it to me, Lord, and I'll work with you. Church at Ephesus, who knows what they were saying. But, but we want to do what David said, and so today we'll do that. We'll work with him. Spirit of the man is the lamp of the Lord. Remember that verse? Searching all the innermost parts of his being. Is that what your spirit is? That's what he wants us to do. So let's follow Christ's lead by doing this ourselves, by examining our motives with the lamp of the Lord to see what else is in there other than love. Let me take the lead by turning on the lamp. 
Even when we're virtuous, our motives can be contemptuous. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. That's why someone said, virtue would not go to such lengths if pride did not keep her company. (laughs) Virtue would not go to such lengths if pride did not keep her company. The virtue of humility, for instance, is often accompanied by pride as its deepest motivation. It's like the Texas bumper sticker, humble and proud of it. Ever felt that way? I have. Someone said, humility is the act of hiding from others the high opinion we have of ourselves. Ever felt that way? Done that? I have. When someone says, for instance, um, Aristotle said, all that we do is done with an eye to something else with an eye to, you know, getting what we want or whatever. When someone says, for instance, you may have heard this, it's not the money, it's the principle of a thing. It's usually the money. You know, it's, it, it's usually the money. It's the principle of the thing with an eye to the money. And sometimes it's not so veiled. It's like the college student who wrote this to his parents. Some of you may have experienced this in one way or another. Dear mom and dad, I'm so worried about you. I haven't heard from you in more than a month. Please send me a check so I'll know everything is all right at home. (laughs) In so many ways, it's so easy to love with an eye to something else. We have some very wealthy friends in Denver and up in Summit County worth multiple, multiple millions, very well known. And we know from them the curse of being wealthy. Most everyone who relates to you has an eye to something else. In one way or another, they're gold diggers. It's so hard for them to know who their real friends are, even among Christians in the church. So often the real reason behind what they do with their parents is the money. You've experienced this, some of you, I'm sure, not just when they're in college, especially if their parents have money that they're going to inherit. Grown children often love them with an eye to something else. And that hurts. And in the same way, so often our basic motive in our relationship to the Father is what we can get from Him as His children. And you can tell it by, and I've experienced this many times over the years, you can tell it by the anger that so easily comes when he lets bad things happen after all I've done for him. So what was your real motivation all along in all you did for him? We do so much in the name of the Lord, but with an eye to something else. Maybe for you that's something else that's behind what you do is to please men or to be seen of men, nothing to do with God, or not as much to do with God as it ought to, or to get something from them, or to impress people, or to control people, or to protect yourself, or to get into some inner circle, or to have some prominence in the church. Is that a part of why you're ministering? Oh, our motivations are such a mixed bag. They range from fear to greed to jealousy to pride to power to self protection to selfish ambition we so easily fall from our first love of doing it all for him with an eye to nothing else we want so many things we will so many things when as Kierkegaard said purity of heart is to will one thing that nails it and that is 
out of our love for him to please him alone. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it as unto him. Colossians 3.17. Now, there's a lot more there, but I'll have mercy and cut that part of it off. If you're anything like me, as Christ slices to the heart of the Ephesian problem here in chapter 2, as you take his cue and let the lamp of the Lord search out, your, let your spirit, the lamp of the Lord, search out your own innermost parts with him, you end up feeling like John did back in chapter 1, which is what we began with months ago. When Christ appeared to him, if you remember, out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and John fell at his feet as a dead man. Christ slayed him in the same way that he slayed the church at Ephesus, or at least he tried to, through the two-edged sword that was exposing something deep within. And just what was that? Well, uh, it's the very thing we've been talking about. Indeed, the deepest reason God's word was given As it says in Hebrews 4.12, famous verse, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So when you get into the word, is it all for what's up here? Or does it achieve its ultimate purpose of judging the thoughts and intentions of your heart so you're a true believer from the inside out? This is the antidote to Phariseeism to becoming a whitewashed tomb because true Christianity begins with the inside of the cup. And if there's anything that will bring you to your knees, it is this, and that's good because there's no other hope. And the one motive that Christ highlights here is by far the most important, the sine qua non, the without which we have nothing, is that of love. You have left your first Love Of all the good motives that are out there uh, and under all the bad ones, there's got to be love. Displacing everything else. What love? Well, this moves us to Roman numeral three uh, in your notes. The application. Commentators have differed on exactly what leaving your first love means. The love of the brethren, the love of the lost, love for Christ, etc. But if you read it carefully, especially in the context of the rest of Scripture, I think it's pretty clear that it's the love of Christ It's our love for him that was motivated by his love for us. At least, that's the heart of it. It's the wellspring of everything else. It was, first and foremost, their love of Christ that was missing. A love that solves everything. And I wish we had time to get into uh, all of the, uh, the passages related to it. But it's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In and through all you do. Because purity of heart is to will this one thing. It's the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart first. Your deepest motives and soul and mind and strength. The heaviest and most important of our motives is love. Not just our love for him, but his love for us. Both are wrapped up in what he's talking about, our first love. It wasn't just that he loved us, uh, we loved him, but that he loved us. That's his motivation here. He's practicing what he's preaching. That's why he examines the motives of our hearts by the sword that we've been feeling today. (laughs) 
exposing the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Why is he doing this? Why is he continually examining and exposing and expunging uh, and bringing us through tribulation to do all this kind of stuff, the evil motives of our hearts, until we say, can't you just leave well enough alone? Why is he doing this? Because he's a teacher that flunks us unless there's perfection? No. Because he's a taskmaster, a, a slave driver who demands our submission? No, it's love. It, it's, it's because he's a lover who wants our devotion. He loves us so much that he's jealous for us with a good jealousy. It's like it says in the Song of Solomon, jealousy is like a fire. It's the very flame of the Lord. And that flame will be terrifying or exhilarating depending on what we're living for. It'll be exhilarating for all eternity when all that stuff is purged away, when we live in the fire of his desire and we have that same fire and that's new Jerusalem and life forever when we'll shine like the sun forever and ever. And he's preparing us for that day. Because what he really wants is you. Preparing us for the marriage feast of the Lamb. He wants this relationship between the two of you and for everything else to flow out of that from his love for you and your love for him and your desire to please him above anyone else. But we have so many other agendas. It may be in his name, but so much of it is with an eye to other things. You know, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, Christ penetrates to what C.S. Lewis called the shattering and disarming simplicity of the truth. Or as Paul said, the simplicity and purity of love. The love that through the confusing complexity of our motives can solve everything from the inside out if we let it in. Augustine put it this way. And listen carefully. Here's how God sees what we do. Here's why love is what he's looking for. Different intentions, Augustine said, make the same actions different. Even if the actions are outwardly the same, if we measure them by their intentions, we find one worthy of praise and the other of condemnation. Such is the weight of love that it alone distinguishes good actions from evil ones. Sometimes love makes one person fierce while wickedness makes another charmingly gentle. A father may spank a son and a child molester may caress him. If you were offered a choice between being struck and being caressed, who would, you, who would not prefer being caressed rather than struck? Yet if you look at the intentions in these two cases, as God does, it is love that strikes and wickedness that caresses. Even as love may sometimes show itself severe, hatred may sometimes be charming. One person may be gentle and agreeable in order to deceive you, while the other may quarrel with you in order to correct you. For that reason, do not judge the words of seeming kindness or apparent cruelty of a rebuke simply according to how they make you feel. Look deeply into the vein from which they flow, the root from which they stem, which is precisely what God does. All our actions will be judged by whether they are rooted in love. Truly love, he concluded. And you may do what you wish. 
That's the bottom line application. Truly love, and you may do what you wish, and you may also say what you wish, because true love does and says the right thing in the right way out of the overflow of his love in us, which always does it perfectly. Wouldn't you like that motivation under all you do? at home and at work uh, and at church to know this kind of love not just as a point of doctrine as a Bible scholar but as a source of compassion as a Christ follower. Christ is slicing to the heart and the soul of the Christian faith here. The wellspring of all else. He's reaching out to us through jealousy that's like a fire. Through mercy that's like a sword so that through our brokenness at the foot of the cross, we can find the fullness of his love. Which is why we focused on his love in our worship today, all the way through our closing song, which we'll sing in a bit. I will sing of my Redeemer, not just from the penalty of sin, he can, he's redeeming us from the power of sin as we turn to him. That's the gospel. And we'll unpack that for many months this fall when we launch into the, gospel, the epistle of the gospel, the book, the book of Romans. You might say this, this message today, this message of conviction has been couched in his compassion through our worship before and then closing. The conviction about which I've been speaking has been couched in the compassion about which we've been singing. Because he's just waiting to break in. And all he needs is a brokenness that opens us to him. Which is why he told the church at Ephesus two times to repent. That's the good news of the gospel. That's how we're saved. It's the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk. It's what John was doing in Revelation 1 as an unforgettable picture at the end of Revelation of the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk of falling at his knees as a dead man and experiencing his mercy and rising up in his sufficiency to write the book of Revelation. It's what the Ephesian congregation needed to do in chapter 2 and that was God, his agenda in love. And so, following what Christ, his agenda, I thought that's what we do right now. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes. Take a minute to repent as God leads, as the spirit of a man, the lamp of the Lord, thinks about what we've talked about. Turn to him as you confess your sin, and in particular, the sinful motivations that we talked about earlier. Now let's focus on love. Let's confess how far we can fall from loving him without an eye to something else. How far we can fall from loving the Lord our God. Let his word sink in with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind through our every word and work with our every thought and intention as our deepest motivation. Confess that you've fallen from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Just turn to him in your conviction with the brokenness that opens you to him like John did in chapter 1. Now like happened with John, having turned to him in our conviction as the musicians come forward, let's receive his compassion as we sing of his, our first love, as we sing of our Redeemer.